0: This is episode 211 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons. Unlock bonus episodes and exclusive history content at patreon.com That Shakespeare Life.
1: While Adams is there, things are still a little bit incorrect, but yes, it's, it's perfectly reasonable to describe him as a Japanese samurai, and he uh, was given a Japanese name. Probably uh, William Adams was a bit hard to pronounce, so he was called Anjin. And Anjin means the pilot. That was what he'd been on the, on the ship, the navigator. But interestingly, An uh, was also an abbreviation of Anglia, meaning England. Anjin means a person. So Anjin, uh, as well as meaning pilot, can also mean Englishman. And it, it sets Adams aside from everyone else who was either Portuguese or Dutch.
2: And now, here's Cassidy. In the year
0: 1600, when William Shakespeare was just 36 years old, William Adams became the first Englishman to reach Japan. Adams sailed as part of a multi-ship fleet employed for the expedition by a private Dutch company. Adams would go on to serve in Japan under shogun Tokugawa Iyasu, helping to build the first Western-style ships in Japan, and later helping Japan establish trading factories with the Netherlands and England. While Adams held significant influence in Japan during his lifetime, what was most remarkable was the friendship he cultivated with Iyasu that would last until Iyasu's Here today to share with us the story of this incredible Englishman contemporary to Shakespeare is author of The Shogun Silver Telescope, God, Art, and Money in the English Quest for Japan, Timon Screech. Taiman Screech taught the history of Japanese art at SOAS University of London for 30 years before moving to the International Research Center for Japanese Studies in Kyoto in 2021 as professor of Japanese history. He has recently published The Shogun's Silver Telescope, God, Art, and Money in the English Quest for Japan, and Tokyo Before Tokyo, Power and Magic in the Shogun City of Edo. He is now completing a major monograph on the deification and cult of Tokugawa Iyasu as concurrently working on a short book on early European contacts with the kingdom of Luchu, modern Okinawa. Screech is a freeman of the City of London and fellow of the British Academy. See more information on Tymon Screech, including a list of his other publications, in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Tymon. Welcome to the show. Good morning. The fleet was part of a Dutch private company, but Adams being English, did he need special permission from King James to leave England as part of this Dutch crew?
1: At the time, there was already the concept of a passport and you you were obliged to obtain permission to leave if you were the category of person that the government cared about. So uh, a noble or someone couldn't just leave the country. But someone like Adams was not in that case. Uh, He was a mariner. Obviously, mariners traveled the world. It wasn't yet at a time when East India companies were kind of jealously guarding their staffs and their trained people. So it was completely routine for Adams to be sailing with a Dutch company. And in fact, we should remember his brother traveled with him. Sadly, the brother didn't make it. He died like so many men did en route. But uh, there were many English people in that voyage.
0: Was Japan the initial destination of this five-ship fleet?
1: Yes, they they hoped to get there. They didn't really know what they were aiming for. There were, Japan was a fabled place from... Marco Polo, of course, mentioned it, and the Isles of Gold and, and, and the Japangu and... And even Cathay, which we think of today as meaning China, probably really meant Japan because it's referred to um, as an island. In any case, people knew that there was something out there already. There were reports of Portuguese vessels in Japan that had found a very wealthy country and uh, lots of silver and gold to be exported, lacking the kind of manufactures that Europe could bring them. And so people had an expectation. Now, getting to Japan, of course, was a big, big deal. Maps were extremely um, inadequate by our standards. They didn't know. Where they were heading. But you basically had to make a choice of two routes. One was you went around Africa and then you went directly across the uh, Pacific. It's a very, very long way, but the winds would take you to Java and Sumatra. And then you go through one of the very few straits that uh, Indonesia is so filled with little islands that getting through to the East China Sea is quite tricky. Anyway, having Done that, you go past the Philippines. They go. That's one route, and that's the one the Portuguese were using. But there was also a way to go down under the south of modern-day Chile, in other words, around the the Horn, and you would go Terra Ter- del Fuego and then go across the Pacific from the other direction. And that was regarded as suicidal, and nobody would ever really succeeded in doing it since Drake had managed. But that's the way they went, and it probably was a miscalculation. It cost them a vast amount of time and human life and ships. But, as you intimated, a small element of the fleet uh, eventually got there.
0: There was some considerable upheaval created by the arrival of these ships when they did finally make it to Japan. The Portuguese Jesuits claimed that the crew members were pirates and tried to have them executed. Timon, why were the Portuguese Jesuits in Japan in the first place? And what interest did they have in accusing these Englishmen of being pirates?
1: Well, the Portuguese Jesuits were um, were everywhere. and they were there with Portuguese traders and Portuguese um, slave, enslavers, and they were part of a, the kind of rather grotesque outfit that went in the, tra- in the train of what we think of as the rather glorious days of um, the Age of Discovery. So Spain and Portugal, of course, were the huge, powerful maritime countries of the period, but the Spain- Spanish and Portuguese crowns Conjoined, the same as the English and the Scottish town, one person by chance uh, uh, took both. And in order to avoid squabbles and uh, internecine debates, uh, the Pope was persuaded to divide the world. In fact, the Pope had already begun to think in those terms divide the world in half, half for the Spanish and half for the Portuguese. And so the Portuguese went east and they went through India and Southeast Asia, and the Spanish went west and they took over um, Latin America. Uh, The dividing line that the Pope drew, allowed the Portuguese to keep Brazil because they had already taken large parts of it. That's why Brazil is the only Portuguese-speaking part of Latin America. But these maps were very unclear about the other side of the world. Nobody really knew, knew what was there. The Portuguese claimed that the papal dispensation allowed them Japan. It was theirs. And they got there first. And the Portuguese, on the whole, the Portuguese crown, had traditionally supported the Jesuits. So with the Portuguese came the Jesuits. The Spanish crown had traditionally supported the Franciscans, often referred to as friars. They were fratres, brothers, and not always priests. In any case, they took over large parts and attempted to um, convert large parts of Latin America. So we got two ecclesiastical orders that were also associated with two different countries and two different crowns, but the crowned head was the same person. It was a kind of recipe for all kinds of conflict. At any rate, to answer your question, when the Dutch ship arrived, just one ship. It had been a fairly impressive fleet that had left Holland before, but it was not at all impressive when it arrived. Most of the men were half dead. Most of the men were dead, and the ship was very bedraggled and hardly seaworthy anymore. The Portuguese probably assumed it was a Portuguese ship when they saw it coming in and in, in a distressed condition, and they went to assist it, and they were, of course, horrified to see Protestants. And we have to remember that a large part of um, what's the modern, what was then the Netherlands, was under Spanish domination, the so-called Spanish Netherlands, today mostly the Catholic part of the low countries, i.e. Belgium. And the Dutch were fighting a war of liberation, assisted by the English against the Spanish. But the Portuguese and the Dutch were at war by virtue of the link to Spain. The English were on the Dutch side, and these were it was an enemy ship. It wasn't entirely surprising that the Portuguese Jesuits regarded these people who just arrived as a criminal faction. There was also the religious dimension. They were strongly opposed to Protestantism. They were very concerned that Protestants would interfere with the missions. They'd start telling the Japanese that Christendom is divided. By no means everyone in Europe uh, follows the Pope uh, or agrees with the Jesuits. The Jesuits have been, ex- have been expelled from England for nefarious activities. So the Jesuits are terrified this, this kind of news would would leak out, which indeed eventually it did. And the Jesuits are very right to be concerned. Now, as for the claim of piracy, it's a bit of a terminological issue. One person's pirate is another person's freebooter or explorer. It's a bit like terrorism. It looks different depending on which side of the equation you're on. So that the Spanish probably genuinely believed that the Dutch were going around the world um, attacking Spanish and Portuguese interests and uh, behaving in, a dis- in an unscrupulous way the 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 Dutch and the English believed that they were behaving perfectly correctly under terms of war, but the English and the Dutch also would would have pointed out that they were never see- seeking to seize territory. They did later on, but initially the English uh, and the Dutch are pure trading bodies; they are not seizing territory they 're not taking anything away from from the Spanish and the Portuguese colonies, much less are they taking anything away from Asian or African kings.
0: So what happens to Adams and the rest of the crew? They, they arrived and they're all bedraggled and things are pretty rough for them. And the Jesuits, have they land and they're accused of piracy. Do, do they make it? I mean, are they, are they executed for these crimes?
1: The, 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 the ship that arrived, the one sole ship called the, the Lifta, which means charity. The, the fleet had very um, Protestant names. The main, three main ships were called Faith, Hope and Charity in Dutch language, of course. And the only one that made it was a charity, the lifter. And it was very heavily armed because it, although it was a merchant vessel, they didn't know what they were going to find. They were also very aware that arms could be excellent trading goods in places that they arrived. So the Jesuits and then the Japanese looked at the ship and it was filled with arms. And the Jesuits said, look, how can you believe these are traders? They've come to attack. And the shogun, obviously, the ruler of Japan, was concerned. The Jesuits said, get get rid of the problem immediately, kill them all, and that's that's the problem solved. But the shogun, um, we don't know his deliberations, he didn't write anything down, but he presumably thought another foreign country could be a counterbalance. All, All his knowledge of Europe and the rest of the world was coming from the Portuguese and the Jesuits, and that news from somewhere else would be very useful. The Japanese were very well aware of triangulating in this way. After all, they'd been um, dealing with China and, and Korea against each other. The Ryukyu Islands, modern day Okinawa, Japan's foreign policy was perfectly sophisticated enough to understand this. So Ieyasu called for the m- most healthy, <laughs> interrogatable person to be summoned from the ship to to meet him. And that happened to be Adams. And if Adams had been sick, the, the, the Dutch captain was in fairly good health. And he eventually also, um, called Kekenech, he eventually also had a similar encounter. But it was Adams who went first. And Adams was the pilot. In other words, he knew quite a lot about navigation. He wasn't just a sailor. And that might also appear appeal to the Japanese. He was, as it were, the, um, the, the scientific uh, figure on board. And, 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 and so he was able to inform the shogun not just about the the ship itself and what it was doing, but also the geography of Europe, um, many things about the movement of the planets, the way that you can track using using instruments and things like that. The shogun we know was very intrigued by this kind of um, um, information.
0: After the fleet arrived in, or the one ship from the fleet rather, in Japan, not everyone was allowed to leave Japan and go back home. Timon was Adams forcibly detained by the Japanese upon his arrival.
1: It's a bit of another terminological question. Forcibly detained, of course, sounds very modern with a kind of police state kind of thing. The point was that there was no way for the, the Dutch to leave. I mean, until another Dutch ship turned up, and none was even expected, they couldn't leave unless they trusted themselves to a Portuguese ship, which none of them would have wanted to risk doing. Uh, they sent a few letters back with the Portuguese, and some of them were honestly delivered, although probably most weren't. At any rate, they couldn't leave until the next ship came, and the next ship did not come for many years. In fact, nine year, eight years, I believe. So when that ship came, the, the captain of it off, offered to take the men home that wanted to leave, and several of them left. Some of them had died. Some of them were doing just fine in Japan. I mean, I, as somebody who lives in Japan myself, I can tell you, you know, why on earth would you want to leave Japan and go back to Holland? I, I love Holland, but uh, I, I, it's, 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 Japan's a wonderful country. And, of course, by 10 years, they, many of them had wives or girlfriends. They may even have had children. They spoke reasonable Japanese, and they, their status was probably higher in Japan. At any rate, some did leave. And now Adams particularly had become quite close friends with the shogun. And we don't exactly know the nature of the friendship. Adams maintained that uh, they were genuine friends. Some of the other English people were amazed and impressed that Adams kind of could walk into the shogun's presence, you know, and ask to talk to him, which most people would never be allowed to do. We don't have so much records from the Japanese side. So it's been a little bit contested, the exact nature. But at any rate, the shogun did rely on Adams for information, and he basically said, Yes, you can't go. Well, there's no record stating you're not allowed to go, but Adams intimated that he was told he couldn't leave. But of course, he was given a very tempting offer to stay. He had a Japanese wife at that point, although he had a, already a wife in England. He was given land and territory and, you know, wonderful perks. I mean, I'm sure he figured in the end that it was worth his while to stay. Occasionally expressed a kind of regret at never seeing London again, never seeing his wife or his um, English daughter. But the calculation probably was this it was worth staying. And of course, who knows that if he left, whether he'd have made it home, the voyage was extremely long and dangerous, and many people who left never saw land again.
0: It wasn't strictly a a prisoner arrangement. I think that's a wonderful frame to put on it. Adams had the risk of of even trying to go back. was It could have been seen as insurmountable from that perspective.
1: Who knows? I mean, if he'd said to the shogun, listen, I'm going mean, to... He could have absconded. I mean, you know, he could have gone down to the... Sh- and taking the ship out. He did, never chose to do that. His calculus clearly was that it, was, it made sense to stay.
0: So what was his role in Japan while he worked for the shogun? What, what service did he provide there?
1: He was given status within the shogun's family name is Tokugawa, Tokugawa Ieyasu. In fact, he retired as shogun. His son took over, but he remained the, the most important figure, and powerful figure in the land. So the retired shogun uh, took Adams into his household. Technically, they're called, they're called bannermen, uh, men who carry the its banner. And it's a, it's a fairly high sort of gentleman-in-waiting kind of status within the household. And that would give him access to an annual salary and lands and servants provided by the Japanese state. But of course, he'd arrived in Japan as an employee of the Dutch company, not the Dutch East India Company, which had not yet been formed, but by the Dutch company that sent the ship. But of course, that contract was not indefinite and it eventually expired. And And after it expired, he became able to trade freely under his own name, as the other Dutch people that were able to do this did the same thing. And when the English turned up in Japan in 1613, so more than a dozen years after Adams had been there, he's taken on by the English East India Company, and he works with them for a brief period. Uh, When that contract expired, he sent ships under his own name to various other Asian ports, never as far as back to England, that would be up. probably futile, but to wealthy neighboring areas such as the Ryukyus, um, modern-day Okinawa, to parts of what are now Thailand and Vietnam, and did some very lucrative trading there.
0: I read somewhere that Adams might have become a samurai during his time in Japan. Can you tell us if this is accurate?
1: He did. I mean, he was given the status of bannerman. So he had the right to, to carry swords, which was the indication of a samurai. There are also various dress distinctions that only samurai could have. However, the real formalization of divisions between the samurai class and the commoner class didn't happen until a little bit later. So there probably were quite a large number of people in a in a grey area. They carried a sword, but You know, they weren't quite properly acknowledged as samurai. The status divisions were still fluid at this point. Don't forget, Japan was in a state of civil war through the entire 16th century. And and the Portuguese, the Spanish Jesuits had done their bit to um, foment the Civil War, what one might say. The Civil War didn't come to a total end until 1615. So um, while Adams is there, things are still a little bit inchoate. But yes, it's, it's perfectly reasonable to describe him as a Japanese samurai, and he uh, was given a Japanese name, probably uh, William Adams was a bit hard to pronounce. So he was called Anjin, and Anjin means the pilot. That's what he'd been on the on the ship, the, the navigator. But interestingly, An. Uh, was also an abbreviation of Anglia, meaning England, and Jin means a person. So, Anjin, uh, as well as meaning pilot, can also mean Englishman. And it, it sets Adams aside from everyone else who was either Portuguese or Dutch or, or Japanese, obviously.
0: Now, you referred to Adams's family back in England earlier when you mentioned he had expressed some regret at the end of his life for not having seen them again. But was he able to write to them or did he communicate with them from Japan at all?
1: Yes, he sent letters back. The second Dutch ship that turned up and took the men away that wanted to leave brought back letters from Adams. In fact, a couple of them have only just been discovered in the archives of the Hague. But we know because of the English East India Company, which came into existence in 1601, so the time that these letters come back from Japan, there's an East India Company functioning in London. They vaguely hear that there's an English person living in Japan who's attained status. And so they hope that he will be there entry point into Japan, which indeed he becomes when the English ship eventually arrives. So he, he sent letters back. There were kind of, you know, sailors' yarns about this person probably circulating too. His wife lived in Limehouse, people who know the geography of London, just outside um, Bishop's Gate was the eastern gate of the city. And go beyond that, outside the city walls, there was an area called Limehouse still there, a railway station named after it, where many marita- mariners lived on the Thames. And uh, his wife, Mary was uh, living there with their daughter, and the daughter's name was Deliverance. And that's a rather interesting name to consider because Deliverance meant the delivery of England from Spain at the Spanish Armada. Remember that sort of like Cold War situation is still going on. England and Spain attained peace in just into the 17th century, but still memories of the horrors of potential Spanish invasion were aware. And Adams would have been telling the shogun about this, and this is one reason why he Adams, Adams was, um, he had the ear of the show, and he said things that Jesuit priests would never have told him. But in any case, he sent letters to his wife. He sent money back to his wife. And when he died, which he died in 1620, never having left Japan, or well, never having returned from Japan, he left half his estate to his Japanese family and half to his English family. His daughter, his daughter, Deliverance, married. We know that she married in London, but nobody's successfully traced what happened afterwards, whether there's any uh, descendants left in England today, who knows, but they wouldn't have the name Adams because uh, uh, he only had a daughter.
0: To hear Adams' story, it sounds like he was sort of captured in Japan and certainly required to serve. And and with these conditions, I'm just surprised that he would be so loyal to the Shogun. I think I'm, I'm with the other people who were surprised that Adams expressed this genuine friendship with the shogun but he does seem to have been loyal even to the point of being buried in Japan upon his death. Time and I just wonder if you can explain how this friendship came about and whether or not Adams's grave is still marked or or honored there in Japan today.
1: The friendship, you know, we would love to know. Uh, Adams kept many record many letters that have survived and no doubt many letters that haven't survived. Sadly, he didn't keep a diary or not consistently. So we don't have his thoughts. We don't have his comments. But when the English East India Company arrived and set up a base in Japan, as I said, in 1613, the person that ran that trading station, whose name was Richard Cox, he was a copious diarist and quite a bright person. He was a bit of a cut above the um, the average sailor, if I can say that without sounding Elitist. Richard Cox wrote down a lot of stuff, and he made many comments about Adams's relations with uh, the Shogun. The Dutch, of course, were also writing these things down because the Dutch had brought Adams to Japan, only to find that he sort of helped his fellow countrymen when the English turned up. Although Adams remained also very loyal to the to the Dutch interests, so I suppose he was a rather upstanding kind of figure. Adams he didn't sort of um, dump one loyalty for another. Now the Shogun had saved his life. The shogun had given him land and territory and status, such things he would never have had in England. Imagine that he never would have even got to meet the Lord Mayor of London, never having met, never had a chance to meet King James or being invited to Whitehall. And there he was um, in the presence of the shogun. The gorgeousness and the wealth of the Japanese court would have been utterly amazing to him. He'd never been to, you know, to Elizabeth I or, or James I, but one can imagine the shogun's court was infinitely grander. The climate was better that the food was better. He had a, a status, especially once he spoke Japanese reasonably well, that he would never have matched uh, in England. So why on earth would he want want to leave? I mean, of course, like many exiles or people who travel the world, there's an occasional nostalgia for home. It would be unexpected that he'd occasionally have a few regrets. But on the whole, we can assume that he saw no reason to leave. He'd have had to have left all his his wealth, his privileges, and there's no guarantee he ever would have made it home. Although the first English ship that went to Japan in 1613 uh, set up this trading station, did get home safely to England. Everyone went back safely. And and in fact, some beautiful gifts from the Shogun were given to King James I, some of which still survive. Adams's grave has been the subject of interest for well over 100 years since Japan opened to the West in the mid-19th century. And uh, of course, at that time, Britain was a very powerful country, uh, was, um, had much activity in Japan, and word of Adam's return to um, people's uh, memories and a lot of study of him. Uh, now, there's a monument to him in the lands that the shogun gave him, which are fairly near to modern Tokyo. However, that is not a grave. It's an old monument, and it's been beautifully restored and everything worth seeing today, but it's not understood to be his grave. He died, the records tell us, down by the port which is very far away from modern Tokyo. It's right down in the south. I mean, even it's a a kind of an hour and a half flight even today on an airplane to get there. But there's a site there which uh, historically people said it's Adams' grave and there was a a marker of a much later period that people had identified. Now, interestingly, Adams was given this name Anjin, but his son had also kept the name Anjin, but took the name Miura Anjin. And Miura was the lands which had been given by the shogun near Tokyo where this monument is. So the son was called Miura Anjin. A family living next door to this plot that they say is Adams' grave is still called Miura. So they maintain that they are descendants. Now, it'd be pretty hard to prove that, and 400 years have passed. But in any case, it's worth thinking about. That grave had been exhumed in the early 20th century, in uh, 1915, approximately, and they'd found human remains that they it didn't appear to be Japanese. The bones were too big. so. But then they'd reburied it, and and and, and so that grave was reopened. And one of the major figures involved in that process was uh, Richard Irving, whose, whose, whose book um, I recommend strongly to your readers, readers on The Seminary of Adams. They were able to re-exhume the bones. They discovered from DNA analysis, a little bit of DNA was discovered. They discovered that these bones were of a North European. In other words, they couldn't be Spanish or Portuguese which otherwise would have been likely for Western bones. There were more Spanish and the Portuguese around in Japan. They also seemed very unlikely to be Dutch. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how this conclusion was reached, but it seems that it's about 95% certain that they are the bones of Adams. Adams had a broken shoulder. He writes about that on a fall from a horse. Sadly, no shoulder bone was found, had it been, we might have been able to prove one way or the other. But the site of that grave was on the hill, looking over the, over the, See, In other words, it was a very prominent spot. Your average sailor who died in Japan, several did, would not have been buried at such a spot. So we can be pretty, pretty confident that Adams's bones have been discovered. Now, since he died in May 1620, these discoveries were intended to be announced to the world in May 2020, and there was going to be a big uh, events. And of course, everyone knows COVID hit and it didn't happen. So, regrettably, that grave has been beautified, but there haven't been the international tension that uh, had been hoped. That may come later, although we've missed the 400th anniversary. So, yes, Adams' grave is known. The DNA uh, has not been sufficient to test the uh, family that lives next door still or anyone in the area. But I mean, it would be it would kind of fun if his relations were still alive. It doesn't matter a whole lot. Uh, there is a grave. And if anyone is enthusiastic enough to want to go and visit it, it's on a beautiful little remote island off the coast of, of southern Japan. It's, it's definitely worth a trip.
0: Well, we've touched on just a really true adventure story here, I think, of the life of William Adams. And I know that we would love to explore his story further. Do you have some favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more?
1: There's plenty to read on the subject of Adams. Any of your listeners, uh, viewers can um, you know, Google him and find out. There's, there's many, many things. But there's one four-part book, which has just come out, uh, based on the very latest research by um, a scholar called um, Richard Irving, Four small parts. It's not a voluminous book to read. It's, it's very gripping. And he tells the story in an excellent way. So that's something I would recommend anyone. You can easily find, find it. There's an um, online version as well. Um, if I may venture to recommend my own book, if that's not too cheeky.
0: Absolutely.
1: I wrote something called the, the Shogun's Silver Telescope. And this first ship that left England in 1611, 16, 16, arrived in Japan 1613. Of course, they knew that the Spanish and the Portuguese were already there. The Dutch were already there. They knew they had to take the Shogun, a really spectacular present, in order to get the English admitted and uh, the status um, guaranteed. So they took a huge beautiful silver telescope that was actually gold foiled. So it looked gold. It was made of silver. And I tried to trace why they selected a telescope. Of course, a brand new instrument at that time. Galileo's findings were the latest thing and uh, what the Japanese thought of this when when it arrived. Um, I say I tried to because the documentation is extremely sparse and some of my interpretations were based, of course, on, um, on assumptions. I didn't hide the fact that documentation is sparse and no doubt some people have different opinions. But, but that uh, um, I hope I told the story also in, in, in a gripping and inciting way,
0: which is a fun book to explore, too, just in context of Shakespeare's lifetime and the understanding of Galileo, because typically we think of him as being someone who was despised in his own time for questioning the standard perspective on the celestial sphere, and then to see his inventions being not only accepted but then used to trade at the highest levels was a pretty fascinating perspective that i
1: thought yes. so shall I answer that is that time
0: yeah absolutely okay
1: galileo's struggles with the church came a little bit later the jesuit order was a fairly intellectual outfit they were traveling the world they were trying to um discover things and there were certainly jesuit scientists of great seriousness and, and devotion the problem happened with Galileo he made many findings of course but the one the problem with his findings was that he discovered that or he hypothesized nobody could quite prove it yet that the heliocentricity right the 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 earth revolves around the sun not the other way round. and the problem is that the bible says categorically that the sun moves the earth is the center of the world which is was important for the theology of the time and, being the centre of the world, this is where Christ had been born. But Galileo was able to hypothesise this could not be the case. And so when the church, and the church cottoned onto this, and then they got very upset about it, and eventually, of course, Galileo uh, was subject to trial and, and such, such things. But when his book first came out, <laughs> there were many debates about it. And interestingly enough, Galileo was working in Venice. The English ambassador to Venice was a very powerful and important person, he was given a copy of Galileo gave him a copy. He was friends with Galileo. Galileo gave him a copy, which was immediately sent to King James. And King James in England, who was also a rather intellectual figure amongst English kings, read it and and, and he may have been involved with the decision to send this telescope. The, the, the telescope was given to the Shogun in the name of King James. Whether the king really had been the one to decide on it, we can't tell. But certainly by giving a telescope to the Shoguns, the, the Shogun, the English were pro- proposing the latest thing. They could have told things about science that the Jesuits were not teaching Japan. The Jesuits were teaching the Japanese as much about astronomy as they were teaching about God. And the English could turn up and say, look, hey, you don't even know about this, this latest thing, you're you're out of date. It would have embarrassed them. A telescope also had value in warfare. Japan is still in the last stages of the Civil War. You can look at troops moving on the battlefield. You don't have to only look at stars with it. So in all kinds of ways, this instrument was very well selected. But unlike Galileo, who just had a wooden tube with a couple of lenses in it. This was a gorgeous thing fit for um, a royal gift, and no such telescope had ever been produced before. It was absolutely unique. The result is, unfortunately, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but the records give a bit of a description.
0: We will link to Timon's book in the show notes for today's episode, along with the other resources he's recommended for you today. So make sure you go there to check out those and get a copy to hear the full story. It's well worth your read. Now, Tymon, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those.
1: If I'm on a deserted island, I guess I need to know, first of all, how long are you going to be stuck there? And if it's going to be a long time... I, I would just like to <laughs>
0: applaud you for asking that question, because in over 200 episodes that we've recorded here at That Shakespeare Life, I've asked that question a lot of times. And most people just assume they're going to be there forever. And I always wondered at why why we didn't ask, how long am I going to be deserted? So, so thank you very much for asking that question. But let's say it's going to be a, a medium length of time, long um, I, enough I think, to get bored, but not forever.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, I wouldn't take my favorite book because I'd devour it in the first two days and have nothing left to do for the three years until the next ship arrived. So I'd take something that was long uh, and thought-provoking and difficult and didn't get through to you in the first reading. I might take something like um, Paradise ice lost. Uh, I might take something like Proust, something that would, that would really keep you going and keep you sane uh, for quite a long while. But who knows, after, on a desert island, I might just be happy lying in the sun and eating whatever fruit was available and catching fish and, and leave the whole world of civilization behind. That would also be quite It doesn't appealing. sound
2: like
0: a bad way to handle the desert island, I have to say. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: While this stuff with East India Companies was going on, this shogun who'd, re- who'd gone into retirement and received the telescope died in 1616. Now, your Shakespeare-interested listeners will be intrigued to know, of course, Shakespeare also died in 1616. The shogun and Shakespeare died, uh, I think I'm right in saying, 10 days apart. Uh, because they were using different calendars, it's not always been noticed. At any rate, their deaths were, were, were within a couple of weeks of each other. So that at his death, the shogun was deified. Now, Japan is not a monotheistic country country, they proverbially say that they have 33,000 gods, although that's probably just a random number. But in any case, they, another god doesn't matter. But it's pretty unusual in Japan for a human being to be deified. There were precedents for it, but not many. So I'm now writing a book about the deification of this first shogun, whose name is Tokugawa Ieyasu. The deification. And what it meant to deify him, why he was deified and his absolutely gorgeous and spectacular mausoleum is still sitting there, a two-hour train ride from Tokyo. And any of your listeners that get the chance to go to Tokyo, please go there. It's a place called Nikko. Uh, It's directly due north of Tokyo because north is the direction of kingship. It was built there for very highly symbolic reasons, a fantastic and fascinating place. But I got interested in this because most of my uh, work has been about uh, international contacts in the Japanese early modern period. So why I got into this is that I have a hypothesis which is not provable and whether this will make it into my book or be deleted or something, I don't know. But as the shogun is being deified, the Jesuits are going through a very concerted effort to have Francis Xavier, who was the so-called apostle to the Indies, he uh, brought Christianity to Japan and then he died. They are trying to have him canonized and made a saint. Now, a Japanese Shinto god and a Roman Catholic Christian saint are actually not that different. They are, a Spanish. If the, if, the, if the Shinto god had formerly been a human being, uh, they are people who have gone into a different kind of zone, who are by no means absolute gods, they're not all-powerful, almighty, but they can assist people in the, in the current world. They're people who we should all honour. We might build churches or temples to them. We burn incense to them. We put their images up. I say this with slight hesitation in front of your uh, worldwide audience. Uh, maybe I'll delete the hypothesis eventually later on. But I think there must be some link between the very much forcefully proposed death, uh, canonization processes of the founder of the Japanese mission to Japan by the Jesuits and at about the same time, the shogun himself being made a Shinto god. Now, having said that, when the shogun went into retirement, when he died in 1616, his son finally can exert power, and the son bans the missions. So Christianity is out. 1616, in fact, already there have been severe persecutions in the last couple of years of the, last, of the late shogun's life. And by 1616, Japanese Christianity has more or less Gone underground, or um, Christians have um, gone into sex- self exile, or they've given up their faith. After all, we have to remember that these missionaries in Japan—few of them spoke Japanese—they were putting across concepts which are pretty hard. I mean, explaining the Trinity, transubstantiation. The average Japanese peasant, no, it's not stuff that they've ever thought about before. So giving up Christian- taking Christianity, taking baptism, giving it up later on was not a big deal for, for very many people. So the Jesuits, uh, it all kind of came to an end. So that's not exactly a, a very succinct answer to your question, but I am working on this question, of the deification of Yeyasu. And I hope uh, a book will be out for your readers to um, consider uh, reading in a couple of years' time. I have the working title of uh, The Royal Cult of the Shoguns. And that's the...
0: It sounds fascinating. We're certainly looking forward to seeing that come to fruition. Thank you so much, Time and Screech, for being here with us and walking us through the history of William Adams, the first Englishman to go to Japan. Thank you so much for being here and joining us today for this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about William Shakespeare. Our show notes for today's episode contain more information on our guest and their research, as well as links to the resources they recommend you use to learn more about today's topic. Find all these things at cassidycash.com/episode209. That's cassidycash.com/ep209. Just like Shakespeare's work, our show is powered by loyal podcast listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. We've got a bunch of special bonuses packed into our Patreon area for people who choose to help us keep the lights on in the studio here each week by supporting our show. Patrons get access to things like detailed show notes for our episodes, which includes all of the research that go into the questions and the the behind-the-scenes stuff that we put together here each week. This includes visual content that we just can't share on the audio of our podcast. But it coordinates with the history you're learning about here each week This includes woodcuts, portraits, sketches, museum exhibit pieces And more bonus content as well as in-depth research information So if you're researching what we're talking about It's a great resource for you to use as a starting point to explore the topic further There's other great bonuses packed inside the patrons area And we would appreciate your support Check out patreon.com slash that life to find out more and sign up today That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the barn. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.